Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events and historical perspective. I'm your host, Patrick Payandi. And I'm your other host, Mark Sikalski. Today we're discussing religious, national, and ethnic identities in contemporary Africa. What unites Africa's peoples, states, societies, and what divides them? How have historical experiences influenced the formation of national, ethnic, and religious identities, and how have they changed over time? What do overlapping identities and competing loyalties mean for security, state building, and governance in this extraordinarily diverse part of the world? With us to discuss these and other questions are three scholars of Africa, Usman Kobo, Amanda Robertson, and Amy Pate. My name is Amanda Robinson. I'm an assistant professor of political science at The Ohio State University. And my research focuses on the intersection of culture and politics. Um, in the past, I've studied the relationship between nationalism and ethnic group segregation on intergroup relations. And currently, I'm working on a project around political mobilization of ethnic groups and how that affects cultural change. My name is Usman Kobo. Uh, Associate Professor of History at uh, the History Department here at OSU. I'm Amy Pate. I am the Research Director at START at the University of Maryland, um, which is a uh, terrorism research center. My personal research focuses on um, identity-based um, groups who engage in political violence and the, the relationship with political instability, and my region of focus is West Africa. Well, thank you all for joining us today. Um, We'd like to start off by giving listeners a sense of the lay of the land here. This is part of the world that tends to get lumped together despite its really great diversity. So what do we see as the main divisions within the continent if we were to kind of outline this broadly? And maybe, Amy, if you'd like to start us off. Sure. Um, Well, I think one of the things that we frequently see in the media, um, especially in reports about African countries, um, besides the fact that they tend to be grouped together in ways that other uh, continents are not, um, is that they're presented as characterized by a lot of conflict and extreme poverty. Um, However, most of the countries in in Africa have actually made enormous strides since 2000 in terms of human development, in terms of economic growth, and in terms of governance. Um, So I think that's there are pockets within Africa that hold a lot of innovation. So places, cities, and megacities even, like Lagos and Nigeria. Yes, there are persistent problems there, but there are also wells of, of innovation that we don't frequently see uh, in the West. And I think some of the, the divides or key regions in Africa, I think the regional organizations, governance organizations, things like the ECOWAS, which is an economic and political union in West Africa, are actually quite important in the region, not to the level of the EU and Europe, but still pretty significant in shaping how countries uh, view each other. Usman and Amanda, what might you add to that? Well, Usman probably has more to say about this, but I would say that the religious divide in many countries seems to be becoming more salient over time. Um, I should have mentioned earlier, most of my research has been focused uh, within Malawi, which is a country with both Christian and Muslim populations, and historically had very few problems in terms of interreligious conflict. Um, but based on what's happened in other parts of the continent, there seems to be a rising kind of fear of the possibility of religious-based conflict in Malawi, where there's been no history of it. And so I think moving forward, there's a, at least the potential for that kind of divide. And I think that's something we'll talk more about in a bit. Well, I would like to add what Amanda and Amy have, have just mentioned. Um, 
all of us, not only the media, but even uh, scholars have the tendency of homogenizing Africa as one territory, one area, to the point that students sometimes think that Africa is a country. Uh, I, I, that's the first quiz that I often provide uh, my students. Now, the, the diversity of the of the continent uh, notwithstanding, it's also important to, to emphasize that Africa today, uh, one can essentially talk about religious divisions mostly between Islam and Christianity. One would not say every African subscribes to either Islam or Christianity, but majority of Africans do, to the point that it is probably evenly split uh, even within sub-Saharan Africa between the Muslim population and the Christian uh, population. But this is just one aspect of the of, of various forms of identities uh, within within the African continent. You, you mentioned uh, regional divisions, and I, I would like to um, add that these regional divisions are the product of post-colonialism. It, it was indeed the various institutions within the within the UN, starting with the United Nations Development Programs, that sort of created uh, regional, uh, what one might call regional political divisions. So we have the West Africa, we have the East Africa, we have Southern Africa, and so on and so forth, and North, Northern Africa. But even the United Nations uh, institutions actually used what the colonialists had initiated during the colonial period. I mean, we had the French West African Federation, for example. So the idea of West Africa was not new, but it did not predate the colonial system, even though the, the Arabs also had their own divisions where West Africa, for example, was described as Western Sudan, and so, and so on and so forth. But the regional divisions have been very, very helpful, um, as Amy would probably add uh, upon what I'm suggesting now, ECOWAS, for example, had been very, very helpful in promoting conflict resolution in West Africa. We do remember the ECOMOG, and we can define this as we proceed. Okay, great. I was wondering if you could give us a sense of uh, the main divisions within sort of practices of Islam across the continent. Is there a lot of variation here between, say, East and West Africa? Well, here, here again is one of the one of the media confusion, uh, and sometimes scholarly as well. Islam is one religion. Uh, one cannot, for example, talk about Islam as, you know, various groups within Islam as sects, right? Because the central tenet of Islam remains the same wherever one goes. And Islam in Africa is not entirely different or in any form different from Islam in any other parts of the world. There are scholars who emphasize the nature uh, or the emphasis on Sufi, uh, that is Islamic mysticism in Africa. But Islamic mysticism is pervasive. I mean, there's the, even though Saudi Arabia would not like to admit because uh, its own uh, national policy is against Sufism, which Saudi scholars who have inherited the teachings of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab suggested that Sufism is an accretion, it's, it's an accretion in Islam, it was not practiced by Prophet Muhammad, but Sufism did not evolve from Africa. Of course, Sufism started in the, in the 9th century in Baghdad, some would say even 8th century in Baghdad, and it is everywhere. You find Sufi brotherhoods everywhere. Now, within the context of Afri uh, Africa, in West Africa and, or Eastern Africa, one would have almost evenly split in terms of the population between those who subscribe to Sufism, Sufi practices, uh, adherence to Sufi brotherhood, and those who don't 
who don't. And one would find the same situation in East Africa. Now, even when we go to East Africa, I mean, the, the Islam and Islam as an identity and Islam as a cultural practice in Zanzibar might be a little bit different from uh, that of, let's say, uh, Kenya or, 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 or even uh, Tanzania, mainland Tanzania. But I do not want us to begin from the assumption that there is a difference between Muslim practices in Africa compared to other places. Okay. Now, Amy, as I understand it, you've studied extremist organizations in various parts of the world. How would you say groups like Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab compare to uh, those elsewhere in, uh, in the Middle East or uh, Southeast Asia? Um, well, there are some similarities, but there are also um, a few differences. I'll start off with just some numbers. So a group like um, Boko Haram, at least in its the last few years, like it didn't start off particularly violent. It started off as a nonviolent reformist movement, anti-corruption, um, focused more on proselytization um, than anything else. But so let's, I'm fo- talking now about the 2012 to 2015 period. Mm-hmm. Um, it's far more lethal than your average extremist group. I mean, most extremist groups actually, and terrorist groups are actually not all that successful at killing people. Some of them don't actually aim to inflict large numbers of deaths. But Boko Haram has been particularly lethal. It, the average attack that it carries out kills around nine people in, in the recent past. And this compares to a global average of about two and a half people being killed per terrorist attack. So that's something that sort of distinguishes them from other extremist groups. And with both Boko Haram and al-Shabaab, they both grew out of very local conditions that were unique to northern Nigeria and, and especially northeast Nigeria in the case of Boko Haram and to the Somalia. However, they have linked up and actively participated in uh, transnational movements as well. And a lot of times this participation has been more rhetorical than anything else, but the sort of active linking up and forming alliances with what we call global jihadi movements, whether it's um, Al-Qaeda and its affiliates or uh, now the Islamic State is, is the hot bandwagon in town in that world. That also makes them somewhat different from many extremist movements who are, are not just born out of local uh, conditions, but they stay local. They don't reach out and try to link up with transnational movements. So despite the fact that their activity is still largely within their regions of origin and then slightly over border. So Al-Shabaab, most of their attacks are in Somalia, and then they spill over into Kenya, Boko Haram, most of their attacks are in northeast Nigeria, but they spill over into Cameroon, Niger, and Chad. Mm-hmm. And are there precedents for this kind of thing in, in African history? I mean, there have been other uh, religiously based um, extremist movements. When I was doing field work in uh, Nigeria on Boko Haram, one thing that I found interesting is when I was talking to key informants there, the group that they tended to compare Boko Haram to was actually the Lord's Resistance Army, which was not a a Muslim group. They were a variety, grew on Christian and traditional beliefs, but as far as the tactics and the way leadership worked, that was who the Nigerians were comparing Boko Haram to, um, largely because the Lord's Resistance Army also did lots of kidnapping and conscription of young people into their forces, which Mm -hmm. Boko Haram has started doing. So, I mean, so there are are precedents. And even in uh, Nigeria, there have been violent movements in in the past. I think the difference between things like Boko Haram and and sort of more historical precedents is, A, this 
active linking of themselves, at least rhetorically, with a global movement, which did not happen so much in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just, again, the, and part of this is because of the, the weaponry that they have access to, the degree of destruction and lethality that they have uh, inflicted in their areas of operation. Do you guys have anything you'd like to add to that? Um, I'd like to throw a question out there, if that's sure. okay. I'm yeah, curious totally. um, for Amy and Usman, what they think the kind of um, strategic value, if that's the way to phrase it, would be of framing these groups around religion, whether it's legitimacy, whether it's um, additional means of recruitment, or, or why these groups um, have an interest in framing their movement as a religious one and in connecting to these larger um, religious extremist movements. Well, that's a very good question. I, the, one, one of the answers, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll try to be brief, one of the responses that I could give to this is the fact that in Africa, uh, religion is very, very important. Religion is central to most Africans' uh, cultural practices, personal identity, and, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, I mean, when we look at Boko Haram, for example, Boko Haram did not emerge out of a, out of a social or political vacuum, correct? Boko Haram emerged in a part of Nigeria that is highly, highly disenfranchised, very poor. And we, we, we see this a lot. I mean, uh, any, any individual, any charismatic individual could use religion, <clears throat> excuse me, as a way of mobilizing the, the disenfranchised. And they can mobilize the disenfranchised as long as you, they provide them with some hope uh, or an opportunity to, to wreak havoc, right, uh, on those they blame for their own conditions. And this is one of the, one of the, the, the situations in, in Nigeria. I mean, we do know that Boko Haram, for example, recruits extensively from among, among the poor. Uh, this might be a little bit, a little bit different from, from other societies. So I, I would say religion provides the stimulus for mobilization. Uh, it provides the avenue for rapid recruitment. Religion is emotional. And as long as you can and here I'm not uh, a psychologist by any means, but I believe that as long as one can tap into that kind of emotion, uh, especially those who are not deeply educated in the religion, right? Those who are not deeply educated in the religion, but they have an emotional attachment to it, they might believe, yes, they're doing something that God supports. And, and I'll just build on that a little bit um, as far as why why religion versus some other ideological or identity construct Mm -hmm. um, within the region. Um, So places like Nigeria and, quite frankly, a a lot of African countries are extremely ethnically fragmented. And so if – so there was was an option that Boko Haram could have gone an ethnic Kanuri route. Yes. However, that limits them in some ways. So in some cases, national identities are not as strong in many of these countries – but religion is a slightly broader identity so that it, it widens their potential constituency over, say, something like that's purely an, an, an ethnic mobilizing force. And, and sometimes you do see sort of uh, fusions of ethnicity and, and religion. At times like that happened in northern Mali when you see where there traditionally been a focus on more secular Tuareg identity to the fuel insurgency there, it then had a religious component added onto it in the most recent iteration of, of that conflict. But re- religion broadens. It broadens beyond the ethnic base because a lot of these ethnic groups are actually, they're not all that big in absolute terms or in terms of how their proportion of the population um, in the state. 
I would like to I would like to say something about nationalism, right? Amy uh, and Amanda would they are the political scientists here would agree with me uh, that nationalism, which evolved from nation state, the way it happened in Europe, did not happen in Africa. Uh, it did not get the chance to evolve to the point that people see the nation as their major identity. When you are within Africa and you ask someone who. Uh, uh, where are you from? The person would never tell you I'm African, right? The person would say, I am Igbo. Let's say, using Nigeria as an example, I'm Igbo. Or, or, or if they are outside of their country, they might say, I am a Nigerian. But when they are among themselves, they talk about uh, their individual ethnic group. So I think the issue here is more of ethno-nationalism, which has remained persistent. I mean, the resilience of ethno-nationalism cannot, cannot be... Uh, be questioned. And indeed, I definitely do agree that in the case of Islam in particular, and in other religions as well, the idea of reaching out to other ethnic groups, because Islam blends ethnic, ethnic divisions, at least theoretically, and sometimes in practice. So I definitely do agree with Amy's uh, suggestion here. I would push back a little bit on the characterization of weak nationalism, just to say that there's, there's quite a bit of variation. And I think in some countries, the the national identity is much stronger than subnational um, ethnic identities, for example, in Tanzania. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so if you look at public opinion data, for example, across sub-Saharan Africa, Tanzania is typically an extreme outlier in terms of strength of Tanzanian identity relative to alternative identities. Nigeria is an outlier on the other end, where a sense of Nigerian identity is quite weak relative to uh, religious and ethnic forms of identity. But there's huge variation that I think is sometimes not appreciated fully because we have this sense that the states were kind of artificially created from the outside. They didn't have meaning in many cases prior to um, colonialization. But that's been, these borders have mattered for long enough now that there is some sense that being born on the Malawian side of the border versus the Zambian side of the border does affect your life chances. Mm-hmm. And in ways that don't necessarily, you know, being out in the streets and waving the flag and feeling a deep sense of pride, but there is some sense that this identity matters for people in a way that does inform their kind of sense of who they are and what's possible in their lives. Why would you say that? Uh Oh, sorry, Amy. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. I actually was just looking at the 2014-2015 um, Afrobarometer data, which is a great source of country-level data. And, and there are, I would just, there are countries where, like Guinea, where 75.4% said that they they are the national identity is the most important. Mm-hmm. Um, Namibia had a majority as well, which kind of makes sense given that they were struggling. Um, for independence against South Africa for so long that mm. that probably helped forge their national identity as well. Hmm. Um, and then you do have, a, um, it looks like the, for most countries, the modal where there's the highest percentage of respondents is an equal affinity between their, whatever the national identity is and their particular ethnic group. Hmm. Um, How do you think we can explain this sort of variation? Why in Zimbabwe is national identity stronger than in Nigeria, for instance? So some of it is, you know, the state policy, well, so it depends on how far back you go. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, like um, in the case of Botswana, the um, post-colonial state borders are largely um, similar to pre-colonial understandings of political affiliation, such that there is this kind of consistency that allows for a sense of Botswana identity, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, colonial practices mattered as well. The degree to which um, colonial policies were instituted or enforced at the national level 
rather than at some subnational unit or subcolonial unit or as a colonial larger colonial um, groupings as a whole. And so there's some sense of, you know, being in Nyasa land, affecting people in the same way for just some kind of sense of national identity. And then perhaps most importantly is post-independence policies. So Tanzania, as I mentioned, is typically a large outlier. And one of the reasons is that the first president had policies that explicitly um, sought to encourage national identity. So language homogenization and a a prioritization of Swahili over um, other languages that are spoken in the country, equal um, division of state resources that undermined kind of um, interstate competition for those state resources, moving personnel around. These were explicit policy choices that were made that help explain why nationalism is stronger there than, say, um, in neighboring countries like Kenya or Uganda. Uh, And so I think there's lots of different reasons, um, but that all these countries, just with time, will have a stronger sense of national identity. So Mm -hmm. it's starting out from different levels, but over time, um, any kind of common experiences, good or bad, tend to forge these identities. And I would just add, there are some examples, and I will focus again on the West African cases because those are the ones I know best, where um, processes of democratization early on can actually initially start out with some fragmentation of identity. So because of the nature of the political, how political competition evolves in those countries. So, for example, in Nigeria, post-democratization, you see um, political leaders sort of recklessly using local and ethnic identities or religious identities for their political purposes. And then that and a side effect of that is that it sort of degrades a national identity. Saw the same thing in Cote d'Ivoire um, following democratization when this whole debate about Ivorite, like what it is to be Ivorian, was used in such a way that essentially disenfranchised the large portions of the northern half of the country who are, happened to be of different ethnic groups and also religiously different. They were Muslim as opposed to Christian or, or, or traditional religions. And so I, I don't have Afrobarometer data going back into the 80s, but I have a feeling if you took national identity measures in 1982 under the authoritarian regime, which actually did try to build narratives of national identity as compared to feelings of national identity in 2000, you would have actually seen a slight degradation. Mm-hmm. And now, hopefully, you can see it post-conflict, maybe reconsolidating around a sense of um, Ivorianness that's not as divisive as what had been used um, in the early to mid-2000s. Hmm. To, to uh, extend uh, this argument a little bit further, we can also look at Senegal, where... The Senegal probably is the oldest democracy in West Africa, arguably so. Uh, But when one looks at Senegal, for example, politics does not evolve around ethnicity, Uh, for example. I think in the the case of uh, Senegal, as uh, uh, Leonardo Villalon and others have argued, the Sufi Brotherhoods tend to be the the foresight of, of political negotiation more than the more than ethnic leaders. So in, practically in every election, one could find individuals moving, crisscrossing um, political alignments. So Senegal provides, provides uh, an, an excellent example. Ghana, which should have been perhaps one of the most um, politically minded groups. I mean, I'm from Ghana and I and I know Ghana, Ghana's uh, politics quite well, has not really reached 
that level. Uh, outsiders tend to see Ghana as a very stable uh, democracy. Yes, indeed it is. But when you look at the details, the nuances, ethnicity is emerging as the, the foremost alignment uh, for, for political mobilization. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently uh, with the 100th anniversary of the Sykes-Picot Accord um, that those artificial divisions drawn up for the Middle East are now kind of falling apart in the face of religious and ethnic divisions. But what I'm sort of hearing here is that perhaps in the case of Africa, uh, we're sort of moving in the opposite direction, that if anything, these borders are becoming more reified and these identities stronger. Is that fair to say? Well, I think you can look at it on a lot of different dimensions. I've done work um, along several borders because my work um, leverages differences in national and ethnic identity, and borders are really nice places where you can get variation among individuals and, the, and their sharing of those two identities. And I think on some indicators, you would assume that this border means nothing. The percentage of people that are moving across the border on a daily basis, who have family across the border, who um, go to the market across the border, is huge. So in that sense, the borders don't matter in a lot of places at all. There's no physical demarcation. And you know, often there's not a social demarcation, at least um, in, the, in measuring it in terms of people's movement and their connection, their social connections. But in others, I have experiences where, you know, we cross the border between Malawi and Zambia without realizing it. And we ask a woman uh, to help us find a particular community that we were looking for. And she said maybe three words. And the Malawian uh, research assistants that I was working with immediately knew that we had crossed into Zambia because of something about her accent. Even though we were less than a kilometer from the border, you know, there is this kind of centralization of education, um, of which radio programs people listen to in a way that was immediately obvious to, um, to people that were from across the border. Hmm. And so in some ways, I think, you know, living near the border, you see the differences in currency, you hear these kinds of differences in um, terminology, perhaps, even if people are speaking the same language. And so I think it's, you know, it's somewhere in the middle. It's not that these borders are, are extremely meaningful in every way, but that they are realities, that they're not just um, kind of figments of the imagination in terms of what's on the map. And I think if you look at the immediate post-colonial period with the formation of what was then uh, the OAU and it's now just the AU, the African Union, there seemed to be fairly strong consensus of among the the initial gov governments after independence that the borders may not be ideal, but if we start trying to shift borders, we're going to have chaos. So let's just all agree that we're going to keep the borders and work with them. And I think that kind of, at the sort of central government level between the different countries actually helps reinforce the sense that even if the borders aren't ideal, it's what we're going to work with because they just don't want to open that can of worms. And so to start to begin to wrap things up a bit, we kind of want to ask you all kind of where do we go from here? What is one of the kind of takeaways that you think everyone should know about Africa to better understand what they kind of hear in the news? And so kind of like to uh, give us some kind of takeaways here for our listeners and maybe Amanda, you could start us off. Sure. So um, I think taking it back to where we began um, in terms of the way in which um, Sub-Saharan Africa is viewed by outsiders in this kind of um, very superficial um, way would just be to encourage people as they hear about things that are happening um, in particular countries, you know, to not generalize beyond that country and typically not to generalize beyond the locality in which something's happening. So we see uh, these extremely um, tragic circumstances um, in a particular place, but typically life is going on 
you know, in a normal way everywhere else in that country. And so to not generalize these kinds of um, news grabbing headlines to the whole region, country, um, continent. And I think moving forward, one of the things that's going to be really important and potentially change the nature, you know, my interests are in politics, change the nature of politics is um, the rapid urbanization that's happening right now. You know, people are talking a lot about the ways in which this will affect economic growth, but I think there are lots of good reasons to think it's going to very much affect the way in which politics is organized in many of these democracies um, as people are less tied to a particular region of the country and therefore it makes less sense for politics to be organized along ethnic or regional lines. Well, I will I will do the same as Amanda did. We need to go back and understand um, that it is important not to homogenize uh, the, that huge continent and assume that everyone speaks the same language, they're from the same culture. My students have the tendency of thinking that when they study Africa, they study, they study, they study in a culture instead of cultures. I, I, would, I would also move to, to say something about religion. The Pew Foundation argue that Africa is probably the fastest growing uh, religious continent uh, in the whole world uh, in terms of both Christianity and, and Islam. And this is not going to change. Uh, on the other hand, when I, when I look at the landscape and I look at the debates, I could also feel uh, the sense that religious tensions might continue to grow, and the growth of these religious tensions might not evolve only from local, from local dynamics, but also from external forces. Uh, since the 1970s, especially since the 1980s, I mean, and uh, a few scholars have observed this, Africa has become the territory for the competition between evangelical, American evangelical movements, as well as the Salafi-inclined movements uh, in the Middle East. Now, as long as this competition continues, I, I do sense uh, a, a degree of religious tension. Having said that, there are also great opportunities for religious coexistence. When one takes the Yoruba in, in southwest Nigeria, for example, the Yoruba is split between Islam uh, and, and Christianity, and within one household in a, in a, Yoruba, uh, in, in, in a Yoruba community, one person would be a Christian, the other would be a Muslim. So there's no point to expect religious war in Africa, we, but we also have to be aware of the rising tensions and try to look for ways by which we would provide these societies with inter-religious negotiations uh, and resolutions of conflicts. I'll add a couple of things. I think urbanization is also a, and the rapid pace of urbanization is a key trend to, to look to continue to examine and look for, especially since it's also accompanied by youth bulges in many of these countries. And, and youth bulges and urbanization both have great potential to push countries forward and to drive innovation and economic development, but there are also risks associated with those opportunities as far as um, not building infrastructure quickly enough, not providing jobs or opportunities for all of those young people. So I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic to see how different countries handle those challenges and opportunities. Um, I think we're also going to see, and this is already happening somewhat in Nigeria, a transition from purely resource-based economy, so where oil used to be the biggest part of Nigeria's portfolio, um, to more diversified and balanced economies. And there are several countries um, that are trying to make investments uh, in the knowledge economy. So I think that will be an interesting trend to watch over the next uh, 5, 10, 15 years as well, um, as they try to sort of push that. And I'll, this is driven in part 
in some places by diasporas in places like the United States or the UK who are mm-hmm. investing back into their home countries. And then I think whenever you have economic growth, and there has been pretty good economic growth in, in many of these countries, um, although it's slowed a little bit in the last year or so, the benefits of that economic growth are never distributed evenly or equally. And so I think we may see tensions continue since the distribution of these economic gains are unequally distributed and the distributions, they tend to overlap with regional or ethnic divides or religious divides in many of these countries. So where there's a great opportunity, there's also risk involved. Great. Well, lots of lots of big questions there, lots to think about moving forward, but I think it's a good place to stop. Our guests today have been Usman Kobo, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University, Amanda Robinson, Assistant Professor of Political Science, also at OSU, and Amy Pate, Research Director at START, uh, an organization devoted to the study of terrorism and responses to terrorism at the University of Maryland. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins Current Events Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producers, David Staley. Our audio and technical advisors, Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Payandi and Mark Sikolsky. Song and band information you found on our website. You can find our podcast and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes, and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thanks for listening.